Amen. Hey, once again, we are in our study, World Religions, Cults, and the Occult, number 13, brand new number, Bobby. And what are we studying? Charismatic chaos. Charismatic chaos. And what's the exciting tagline? I had to write it so small because it's so long. That's right. The untold history of the charismatic movement. And I think we're going to begin to see that journey. The boy, is it is an, it's an untold history, even so much so that I would dare guess that uh, many uh, charismatics of that flavor uh, don't even realize uh, what we're going to talk about tonight. Because the premise of the charismatic movement is, yes, it's different. Yes, it's weird uh, to some folks. And uh, wow, that is kind of strange to me. But see, you don't understand because this is a new movement of God in the last days. right? See, that's the premise. This is something new. It's something that, is, you know, you should explain. Is it really new? I don't think so. In fact, that's our opening text tonight. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Go ahead and turn there. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And uh, we're going to see what uh, Solomon had to say about this nearly 3,000 years ago, okay? And basically, he's got a phrase that basically, how much is new? Nothing. Nothing is new under the sun. Just a repeat, a rehash from each generation, but that's the problem. We don't learn our history. We're doomed to repeat it, even in the church. And believe it or not, I think that has everything to do with this premise of the charismatic movement, with all due respect that uh, what they're doing is a new movement of God. I don't think so. But Ecclesiastes chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 2, then skip down to 9 through 11. But let's take a look. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Well, why? Well, skip down there to verse 9. What has been will what? It will be again. What has been done will what? It will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there is something new, huh? a new movement of God. The Spirit is doing... What's he say there? Now, nah, it was here what? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. And here's the problem. There's no remembrance of men of old. And even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. You just forget the past, right? And that's what we're going to see tonight. Is this movement, again, as we saw last week, if you were here, uh, we, we basically did an introduction. We kind of showed you where we're going to go with the aberrant behavior that I felt we need to deal with. Okay, which eventually we'll get to what our chapter is dealing with, oneness Pentecostalism. But oneness Pentecostalism is just one offshoot of this charismatic thing that I think we need to deal with. So that, but also a disclaimer, I'm not saying that everybody who's of the charismatic flavor is involved in a cult. I'm not saying that everybody who's of the charismatic flavor is engaged in occultic behavior. But I think it's increased so much today that we need to deal with this. And frankly, with all due respect, the charismatic movement right now is one of the biggest avenues of the occult and uh, coming into the church and is launching, along with oneness Pentecostalism, that's just one of them, a ton of cults in these last days. So let's back up the train and let's begin to deal with that. Right? But let's take a look at just a little bit of background dealing with the charismatic movement in case we begin. Uh, it's an interdenominational Christian renewal movement, and that's the mindset. It's the, we're renewing the church back to the way it's supposed to be. You know, it's, it's gotten all messed up by us religious types, and they're trying to bring it back, make it fresh, make it new, renew it like it used to be. And uh, it's actually very 
uh, popular today. By the 1970s, the movement has spread to Europe. During the 80s, the movement expanded with a, a bunch of new different denominations. And uh, in fact, it began at that time, 70s and 80s, it began to make its way into uh, some more of your traditional denominations, even Baptists, uh, Presbyterians and that uh, nature. In fact, you may have heard some people refer them to, in this manner. Uh, we're Bapticostals. You ever heard that? Okay, basically, you know what that is? Yeah, you say you're Baptist, but you turn charismatic. But that's the term, right? They, 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 be, they became a charismatic church, they want, but that's the same. But charismatic Christianity is often categorized into three different groups. And eventually we'll probably explode into these even more, okay? But this charismatic community, uh, first of all, you got what's called Pentecostals, right? You guys familiar with that one? Okay, so you got your Pentecostals is one. Then you have, of course, uh, just the general, if you will, the charismatic movement, uh, as you will. And then you got what's going on, the neo, okay, our new charismatic movement. And boy, wait till we get to that. Some of the things that are going on today is just flattening out Hinduism, the occult, you name it, okay? But that's basically how it is split into these different groups that would make up what would be considered the charismatic movement. Now, to show you <clears throat> uh, uh, how big they are, this is not a small movement. This is not just some little thing, well, it'll just blow away. Unfortunately, it's growing. Okay, now the stat is that I have here in the secular article, they are up to 584 million people involved in these three combined. That's a ha almost a half a trillion of people. Now, that's uh, 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 out of the world's, excuse I mean a billion, half a billion, uh, out of the world's, quote, two billion Christians. Now, we saw before in those stats, two billion. I don't buy that number because who do they lump in that number with the statistics? Catholics. Are Catholics Christians? Absolutely not. And we dealt with 12 weeks on Roman Catholicism. Go back and check that out if you're confused about that. Uh, but it's not. And they also lump in Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons in that number typically, as we saw before. Are they Christian? No. So what's the real number of Christians on the planet? It ain't nothing like 2 billion. Okay. But still, of this camp that is supposed to be considered Orthodox Christianity, you're looking at 584 million. So that's a big piece of the pie is really of this charismatic flavor, okay? So, now, the movement, if you're wondering, charismatic, why they call themselves charismatic? Well, it comes from two words, right? You got uh, charis, right? Uh, which is a Greek word, which means grace. And then you got uh, mata, okay? Mata in the Greek, charismata, charismatic, okay? And mata, of course, means gifts. So charismata means the grace gifts. And basically, their emphasis is on the gifts of the Spirit, right? Is the big issue. Right? And then they got several different ones they focus on, uh, but we'll get into the big ones later. Okay? But they believe that all the gifts, basically, charisma, the grace gifts, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, are available to all of us, and, uh, and, and they should all be functioning for today. And eventually we'll get into that. Are they all in function today? What are they, etc., and things of that nature. Right? But there's, there's, there's several different gifts mentioned in the Scripture. They focus typically on the big nine, if I can get the right amount of fingers up here, the big nine, right? And here's what they do. They focus on the uh, word of wisdom. You may have heard that. God gave me a word of wisdom. Or a word of knowledge. Interesting. Or the gift of faith. Or the gifts of healing. Miraculous powers. Prophecy. That's a big one. Uh, distinguishing of, between spirits or discerning spirit. Or the gift of discernment, they might say. Right? Uh, speaking in different tongues, literally gospelly, meaning languages. And that's the key word to understand the real gift. Uh, when it was in function, it was known languages, not the gibberish. We'll probably have a whole study just on that. Maybe even two uh, as we take a look at that. And then, of course, the interpretation of those tongues or 
languages, okay? But even then, uh, there's so many, each one of these, this is the three main categories. Each one of these, man, go in all these different splintered areas, okay, that eventually we're going to get into, okay? Uh, but let me deal with this Pentecostalism, right? This Pentecostalism, okay? This is, uh, there's three main visions within just this one, and, there's, and they go even further than that, but there's three main ones. All right. Now, the original one came out of the holiness movement. And believe it or not, this came out of uh, the, the Methodists, John Wesley, Nazarene, okay, during that time. And there were three things that they originally uh, taught. Uh, and the first step they believed is they had three steps. And this is just the one aspect there, uh, the first step. And that was justification, okay? Justification, you're thinking, well, what's bad with that? Well, that part they got right. And that's the forgiveness of sins that comes from putting your faith in Christ. So they believed that was the first step that you had to have justification. Now, the second thing that they believed in, okay, and again, this is the, from Wesley, is what's called sanctification. That's basically a fancy word for you and I, but basically Christian maturity as you grow in your walk with Christ, okay? Now, here's the error. They believed <clears throat> that you could achieve what was called Christian perfection, that this second step, yeah, the first step, you know, you get saved, justification, the forgiveness of your sins, okay. But you need to achieve this second step of Christian perfection. Well, literally, you wouldn't sin anymore. Is that true? No. That's your first error with this early Pentecostal movement, believe it or not, with the Methodists and John Wesley. Okay. Uh, not at all, right? Now, over time, hopefully in your process of maturity, you sin less, right? But you don't ever become sinless, Right? And if you think you are, I'll talk to your spouse after service and we'll verify it just like that. All right? Uh, so that was, but they said that second step led you to the third step, right? And that third step that they had that you need to do is what was called now you can be qualified to be baptized into the Spirit. Well, wait a second. When are you baptized in the Spirit? Right? You get saved instantaneous. That's when it happens. The moment you get saved, you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. That's your deposit, your guarantee. That's God's arabong engagement ring, the Spirit, guaranteeing our future, our inheritance in Jesus Christ, right? Okay, but they, they thought, well, well, now you got to Christian perfection. Now you can have this, quote, uh, a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, the way that you know that's going to be there is all of a sudden you're going to speak in tongues. So that was the first offshoot of Pentecostalism, out of the holiness movement, you need to get justified first, and then you need to live a perfect life, and then you can get baptized with the Spirit, and then that's evident that you made it to that third step because you're speaking supposedly in tongues. Now, the Church of God in Christ, have you heard of that denomination? That's who holds to this, uh, or just flat out Church of God. So they're the ones that would promote this uh, even today. Now, a second uh, outcoming from this Pentecostal movement that I just men mentioned, this is the ones you're probably more familiar with, Okay, that is Church of God, Church of God in Christ. Okay, now this is the Assemblies of God. Now, the Assemblies of God actually, believe it or not, came out of not just a Baptist background, but a Southern Baptist background. Right, let me, let me share that with you. Uh, they were influenced during this same time, the Holiness Movement in the late 1800s, and they were founded, the Assemblies of God, in 1914, under the leadership of a guy named Eudorus N. Bell, who had been a Southern Baptist pastor who basically turned charismatic, okay? Now, the key difference for these guys from this first one with the Church of God, Church of God in Christ, Pentecostals, the Assembly of God, uh, Pentecostal, their difference is they think that this baptism in the Holy Spirit with evidence of speaking in tongues is available to anybody, 
You know, you don't have to get, make it through this second step, which you can't make it through anyway, because you're never going to become sinless. So that's, that's kind of a little bit of deviation from there. Then the third division is what's eventually we'll get into, Lord willing, in the workbook, start date 5,378 years from now. And that is oneness Pentecostalism, okay? And uh, that's basically, they came out of the church of God. So these first guys, they basically had a split. And of course, their big split was over the doctrine of the Trinity, right? Which is something that the oneness Pentecostals deny. They believe in what's called modalism, that God is one person. Well, God is one, right? But he reveals himself in three persons as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They reject that. And they say that, no, it's only Jesus. In fact, you can only be baptized in Jesus only. Hence the term oneness Pentecostalism. Now, that is the people who are behind what's called the United Pentecostal Church today, or the UPC, and also the Apostolic Pentecostal Church, uh, among others. Okay, But again, they believe basically charismatics, that's kind of a breakdown of the Pentecostals, but charismatics of, of this, they believe that, with the exclusion of some of these other guys, <clears throat> But basically, it's all about the gifts of the Spirit. And we should all be functioning in all the gifts of the Spirit. Now, again, I, I read to you all the different nines, but the ones that they're most known for, the big ones, and, and again, Lord willing, when we get there, uh, we're going to tear into every one of these gifts. And biblically, what does it really mean? And again, are they even functioning for today? Uh, but the big ones, of course, is speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues, that's the biggest one. And basically, their version of speaking in tongues is not a language, which the Scripture holds to, Right? It's a gibberish, and we'll get to where this gibberish come from. Uh, we'll even see that a little bit tonight. Uh, divine healing, right? You know, all those faith healers, right? And go on here, you come to my, you pay me a hundred bucks, and you, you come on over here, and you're going to get a divine healing, right? Oh, and by the way, it didn't work? Well, it's because you didn't have enough faith, right? But that's a big thing. Man, talk about a ripoff, okay? And, and, and you know, putting a hook in somebody's eye. But, uh, but basically, speaking in tongues, divine healing, and of course, prophecies. God gave me a word. God told me to tell you, right? The prophet this or prophet test that and that and this is that. And they believe that it's on par. Or some of the charismatic movement would say, this is old hash. And, and we, we need to now even move beyond this. Because this is a new revelation. Right? Okay. Right? And so we get into that as well. So that's kind of the big one. But the question is, is the charismatic movement, is this scriptural? And we'll get into that, but what I wanted to answer, hopefully tonight, just beginning, is, is the charismatic movement really what they say it is? Is it really something new? Is it really a new movement of the Spirit of God, custom-tailored supposedly, as it's been touted, in these last days? That's why it's so strange. It's a new thing from God, so you should expect something different. I don't think so. And that's why we opened up with Ecclesiastes. You know why? Because the Bible says, no, nah, nothing's new under the sun. You know what? It's been rehashed. Okay. In fact, basically, the modern, so-called modern, new charismatic movement, you know what it is? In history, church history, it's old-fashioned Montanism. Okay. By a guy named Montanus. He was the first to use their own terms, first charismatic. Okay, this is nothing new under the sun. It's just been repackaged. But since we don't even know our own church history, pff, Satan's having a heyday. Right? But let's deal with that. Montanism. Now, Montanism, this was at the time called the second century. Well, second century, that's 200 AD. No, I know you always think that. Your brain works that way. I even had to look this up myself. No, no, no. Right, contraire. Uh, second century is dealing with 101 
to 200 AD. Okay, now this is very important, right? Because this is right after the apostle, the last apostle alive was the apostle John. The apostle John wrote the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. That's it. It's done, right? Over, right? Approximately 95 to 96 AD. Okay, well, this Montanus guy, he's in this first century. So he's right there, right after the last apostle. Some people would say, church history reports, that the apostle John died just a few years later, about 98 AD. Okay, so this is around that time frame. Okay, but that's the last book of the Bible, right? Now, uh, again, John was arrested, church history says. They even put him in a boiling oil to try to kill him, but that didn't work. He was exiled to Patmos, the Isle of Patmos. Uh, some would say for slave labor and stuff. That's where he got the vision for the, and recorded the book of Revelation, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. He got released, some would say, and then a couple years after that, he, he passed away. And he was the only apostle uh, to die a so-called natural death. But remember, he was trying to be boiling oil. It wasn't some, you know, vacation he had. Okay, now, it's during this time also, what I want to demonstrate to you, this second, when this, this Montanus guy, this Montanus guy. Oh, by the way, you know what the name of his uh, movement was during this time? The New Prophecy. Doesn't that sound charismatic? That's what it was, right? And that was during this time. Now, it was during this time that the torch was passing. You go, oh, well... Too bad we didn't have one of the apostles here to let us know that this is not biblical. Well, this is what's called, they passed the torch. The, the last apostle alive, John, okay, last living actual apostle to work with Jesus, hello, and they, they authored basically the bulk of the New Testament, okay. You have this period here, which is called the apostolic okay, fathers. And basically, these were the guys who basically, the last of the apostles, many of these guys knew firsthand and they were the next generation up. But these were guys who weren't taking nobody's word for it. Many of these apostolic fathers were, they were right there. So if anybody's going to know what the apostles meant, what the early church meant, including with the gifts, and if something was right, something was wrong, who do you think it's going to be? These guys. First-hand account, right? This is when this guy, Montanus, is going on. Now, let me give you a couple of those apostolic fathers. First of all, there's Ignatius of Antioch. He lived to about 110 110 AD, right? So John's 98, so he's carrying the torch up to that point. And it's stated that he may have very well known the Apostle John directly, right? That's just candidate number one. The second, even more important candidate is a guy named Polycarp. Poly, of course, means many. Carp is like a, uh, uh, it's a fish. So this guy ate fish. I don't know what he means, but that's his name, Polycarp. Now, he was the Bishop of Smyrna. That sound familiar? That's one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and chapter 3. It's one of the, uh, uh, only two out of the seven get a good word from God. Smyrna was one of them, right? And there's a whole cool story, if you've never read it, about the martyrdom of Polycarp. Man, this guy was a great godly Christian. But anyway, he had a student, okay, Polycarp, by the way, lived to about 155, right? So 155. And again, uh, Irenaeus, who's the student of Polycarp, he said, quote, that he himself, as a boy, listened to the accounts which Polycarp gave of his intercourse with John and with the others who had seen the Lord. So Polycarp, right, even more than Ignatian, he probably not only knew for quite some time the apostle John, but very well other apostles. So again, so I, I want to demonstrate during this time when this new prophecy movement, Montanus, Montanism, was coming out that you had still direct hand accounts 
of people literally right off the heels of the apostles. They were there. And then we're going to see what they felt about this Montanism guy. Now, in a nutshell too, this guy basically, this new prophecy movement, basically what he believed in was guess what? Right? We can get a new word of God outside of the word of God. Does that sound familiar today? Folks, this is in the first century. It was going on. This is nothing new. The charismatic movement is nothing new. It's just been rehashed again and repackaged. Okay? And many times throughout history, maybe we'll get into that later. But basically, it was because of behavior like Montanus saying that, oh no, I've got a word from God. You need to listen to me. Is that it was at this same time frame that the church finally began to say, you know what? We already already basically know what books are considered the New Testament. The Old Testament, the word that's used there is what's called canon. The canon, or what's called the rule, right? The rule. The Old Testament canon, what's the rule? What's the rule? How do we know what is the truly inspired word of God in the Old Testament? Well, that had already been long established for the Old Testament as far back as 250 BC. So there was no question about that. Oh, and by the way, do we add to the Old Testament today? Why? Because it's ridiculous. It's, it's already it's closed. It's, right? it's already done. And, and that's why, guess what? We also have another new te- canon called the New Testament canon. So just as we don't add to the Old Testament, which would be goofy, why are people saying that we need something outside? And we should think because again, even if you're saying that, oh, uh, uh, you know, I'm not saying we should get rid of the Bible. But what's your premise? You're saying you're getting an actual word from God. Well, what is the Old Testament? Words from God. What is the New Testament? Words from God. So, in, in in theory, if you're really saying that you're getting a new word from God, then how come we aren't recording that and putting it on par and having a new New Testament? Right. But again, someone goes so far as that's exactly what we need to do. It's getting that bad in these days. But basically, the man, where am I at? <laughs> you may got the gift of language, interpretation. <laughs> you need some help. Help. <laughs> anyway, so basically, that's already been established. Now, even before the New Testament canon came along, and the reason why I'm doing this is because the church already knew what was the word of God. They didn't need a new prophecy movement. But again, because of that guy's attitude, they said, all right. Let's put our stamp of approval on it, right? And, and they had already, the New Testament, listen to this, um, early on, the New Testament books were already being recognized as Scripture, right? If you want, you could look up some of these. Paul considered Luke's writing to be authoritative as the Old Testament. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 5, 18. Peter recognized Paul's writings as Scripture, 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16. So it was already happening as it was being written, right? Number one. Number two, okay, around this same time frame, because of this guy, the church already basically knew but around the same time, this says, that's it. Let's go ahead and put our stamp of approval, and that's it. Enough of this baloney so that people won't fall for people coming up on the scene saying, hey, I know you think that's from God, but I got a new one. That's why the New Testament canon came about, was because of people saying, I got a word from God. Does this sound familiar? Nothing new under the sun, right? And again, they didn't do this willy-nilly, right? Certainly in prayer, you know, do you think God overshadowed the Old Testament canon process? You think he did it with the new? Of course. But they, they would ask questions like, what was the, was the author of the book an apostle? Right? Uh, does it agree with the rest of the scripture? Right? They wouldn't take anything, you know, uh, willy-nilly. Was it accepted by the early church and circulated by the early church? Right? And most of the church already knew what was considered to be authoritative as the word of God. Was it quoted by the early church and did it come with the power of God? Okay, so, so basically, here comes this Montanus guy. He's got a new prophecy, and that was the name of the movement. It wasn't called the Charismatic Movement back then. It was called the New Prophecy Movement. 
But in a good sense, it basically forced the church to say, we already know what is the Word of God, the New Testament, but let's put our canon on it. Let's, this is the rule. It's these books. That's it. To guard against these kind of people. Right? So I said all that to get to this. Now, let's get into what this guy, this basically the beginning of the so-called new charismatic movement. It's not new. Here's what he believed. Right? Uh, first of all, these people, direct-hand accounts, the apostolic fathers who literally knew the apostles themselves, so they know, they know what the word of God is. They were with there. They had the benefit of being with the apostles. What was their attitude towards this new prophecy movement? You would think that they would know. I mean, if this is the way it's supposed to be, and this is the new movement of the Spirit of God, I mean, they, they should go, yep, that's, yeah, you bet. You got our stamp of approval. That's not what you got, right? They labeled it, this is the apostolic fathers, they labeled it a heresy. Why? Because of the belief of new prophetic revelations. That we need something more than what has already been given. They immediately condemned it. But yet somehow today, you and I are being religious fundamentalists. Remember that one guy in the video when he was so-called token the Holy Spirit? Remember what he said? It's to bust the strongholds of the religious. Which is us. No, it's not biblical. That's why I reject it. Not just because I'm a religious fuddy-duddy, right? But anyway, uh, they rejected it, right? Now, also this new prophecy movement from Montanus, he also believed that we needed to have a reliance on, quote, the spontaneity of supposedly the Holy Spirit. You just let the Spirit flow, man, and whatever's going on, there's no order. There's just, does that sound familiar? Nothing new under the sun. This is going on in... Uh, that time from there. Also, and this is a secular article. If you don't think, if you think I'm just trying to stretch this, quote, parallels have been drawn between Montanism and the modern day movement such as Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement, end quote. Even the secular people say, this is nothing new. This is something the early church had to put a lid on. Unfortunately, we're going to see it starts to squirt out and unfortunately continue throughout History, nothing new. Now, why would the enemy, right on the heels of the last apostle's death, why would the enemy immediately have somebody come on the scene and say, nope, we've got a new revelation? Monsonous. Because what has the enemy done from the very beginning? Get you away from God's word, what God says. Get you to doubt it, get you away from it. Why? Because you get away from that book, you're going to be deceived. And I think that's one of the, the, the un, biggest unfortunate things in the charismatic movement. Again, I'm not saying everybody's in doing occultic behavior. A lot of them are. I'm not saying everybody's involved in a cult when they're in this, but it's spawning a bunch of cults today. But the big thing is when you focus so much on this and spontaneity and this and emotion and experience, you're not in that book. And you're not getting discipled. And somebody could deceive you. Right? One guy puts it this way. He says, we know that since the creation of mankind, Satan's insidious master plan has been simply put, to put a veil between God's children and God's inerrant word. It began in the Garden of Eden when the serpent asked Eve, did God really say? Therefore, and thereby raising doubt as to the authority and authenticity of what God said. Ever since that day, Satan continues to attack the inerrancy and sufficiency of the Bible. And without question, we know that Satan has stepped up his pace of strategy today. Right? And so what has he done? He's taken the same attack on the church right after the death of the last apostles. Immediately tried to get the church away from what they knew was to be the word of God, Old and New Testament. It didn't work. 
So guess what he's doing now? We don't learn our history. How many of you guys ever heard of Montanus? I'm not saying that to poke you in the eye. But I'm just saying Christians in general. We're probably the most ignorant of our history as Christians. It's just been repackaged. And, but it's the same detriment. Get away from the word of God. And focus on all this stuff. Right? Same thing. Now, Montanus, let's get even away. His background, this guy was a recent convert. What's the Bible say? Do you put somebody who's a recent convert in a position of authority? No, you don't. They got to go through what? Scripture says a period of testing. And it specifically even says, lest he should fall for the trap of the devil. Pride. So this guy, first of all, was a recent convert. Don't even know really if the guy was saved. But here's what I want to expose tonight. Why was this guy so hung up on? I mean, you'd think it just, and I, you hear me say this all the time. Since when is this not good enough? Since when do I need to have more than this? What, why? So why was this Montanus guy so hung up on, I'm a prophet of God. I've got a new revelation. You must listen to me. Ah, see, then that's when you got to do CSI, like I did this week, okay? And you got to go into this guy's background. And now it makes sense why he pushes. And dare I say, then you'll discover that this so-called charismatic movement, it goes even further back. Nothing new under the sun. The Greeks and the Romans were doing it in the mystery cult religions. Watch this. Montanus, he was a priest before he got so-called saved. They don't even know. He converted to something, right? But he was a priest of two, man, I don't know if you can see this. I'm running out of room. Apollo, okay, and uh, Sybil, okay? Two different. Now, let me explain what were those people. And, oh, and by the way, because of that, he believed that he was a channel for the Spirit of God to speak through him. Now, basically, what he took, and we're going to see in a second, he took the mystery religions, Apollo, Sybil, their behavior, and he tried to Christianize it, right? But he believed that the Spirit of God was speaking to him, that he was the channel of truth. Listen to him. Why? Well, let's first of all look at what is a prophet or a priest of Apollo? Well, they were called, okay, Apithia. Anybody think where that came from? So we actually get the word python from snake. Scriptures, the Bible, the Christian Bible, the one and only Bible, is the only book on the planet that calls out the snake for what it is as something bad. A lot of the Eastern mysticism, the Kundalini spirit, we'll see all that stuff. Uh, even with what we're about to see with the Pythia, okay, uh, they think it's good. Scripture says, no, stay away from the serpent. Right? But anyway, the Pythia was the name of the high priestess of the temple of Apollo. That was at Delphi. You may have heard throughout history the Oracle of Delphi, right? And the Oracle of Delphi was, was a, 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 a prophetess that got a word for people. Kings, rulers, everybody would go to the Oracle of Delphi to find out, what do I do? What do I do? And, and really, that's what happens in the charismatic movement. Again, nothing new. You know, if, if, you, if you find yourself, what do I do? What do I do? Where do we go? Ah, but what's not happening in the charismatic movement? What do I do? What do I do? Don't go to the Bible i got to seek out prophet so-and-so. He'll have a word for me. Prophetess, so she'll lay hands on me. And she'll do. Same thing that was being done way back in the day with the priest of Apollo. Nothing new under the sun. Right? Oh, by the way, here's kind of interesting. Uh, the Pythia, derived from pytho, from the verb puthain, which means to rot. Kind of interesting. And it refers to the smell of decomposition. Uh, decomposition of the body of the monstrous python that was slain by Apollo. 
So just in case you want to know. All right. Uh, now, uh, the, when the, the Pythia, the priestess, the prophetess of Apollo, when they got at it, okay, and they were filled with the spirit of the god Apollo, then all of a sudden they would get into what was called, uh, anyway, I'm going to run out of room, enthusiasmas. You know what English word we get from that? Enthusiasm. Right? Enthusiasmas was basically the point where the person was now fully possessed by the god. In this case, it would be a demon, right? It'd be Apollo, right? And, uh, and uh, believe it or not, uh, we'll get into some historical accounts of this. Uh, in the 16th and 17th centuries, uh, some of these early charismatics, again, nothing new. This is going on. Now we're, folks, we're way beyond the church. This is really nothing new is where we're at. Uh, but fast forward even to our own country and the Great Awakenings, okay, back to the Wesleys. I uh, think they were uh, accused of this enthusiasmas. And, and I've got accounts of, of during these camp meetings, uh, not only were Mormons there, but there were people there rolling around the floor, barking, making all kinds of noise. Again, nothing new under the sun, but that's enthusiasmas. Okay, now, how did this prophetess get in this state to where she can become filled with the spirit of Apollo, a demon, and then prophesy these things? Well, uh, if you were here before in some of our other studies, we saw that the Oracle of Delphi, okay, um, there was a chasm in the ground. The temple was built, Temple of Apollo was over this, this fissure in the ground, okay, that came, and they built a chamber over that fissure. And out of that fissure came a gas, okay, and, uh, and uh, I'll get in a second, that's where you got your altered state of consciousness, hallucinations, that's where you got your visions from. And they said... Uh, they reports, the Roman writer Plutarch reports that the temple was filled, listen, with a sweet smell when the deity was present. Well, that sweet smell was a gas. It had nothing to do with the deity. In fact, secular researchers, then they gone over to that area. Listen, uh, Dr. Bohr, he speculated that it was a gas known as ethylene, and guess what it possesses? A sweet odor. Right? A toxicologist, another guy, he specified that even a small amount can begin to put a person to a state of trance and give them euphoric psychedelic experiences. Uh, and if you increase it, it just gets even worse. But at, that, at some point, you could literally get to a point, if it's at the right you know, part, if it's too much, you're just gone. Right? But apparently, it was just the right amount of gas coming out of this crack in the ground. And uh, that they said that you could sit up, hear questions, answer people logically, but the tone of your voice might be altered, your speech pattern could be changed, and, uh, and, and things of that nature. So basically, that's what was going on. Oh, and during 2001, water samples from nearby springs yielded the presence of the hallucinogenic. So this isn't just some theory. There was this hallucinogenic gas effect thing going on, and this was the source of the deity supposedly showing up. Yeah, but this, this is Apollo. Now, during this time, again, they, uh, when the gas, apparently, which they thought was the presence of the deity, was active. Listen, the Pythia delivered these oracles, listen, in a frenzied state. Once the vapors kicked in and, uh, and spoke, and I quote, this is secular, gibberish. Sound familiar today? So today in the charismatic movement, when they're saying, we got a word from God, how does it come forth? In a frenzied state, and a known language? No. Not even a foreign language. It's just gibberish. Okay? And then the priests would 
supposedly interpret that gibberish into literature, and that is became the oracle. And of course, they worship uh, shrines. Now, at the same time, with this, they're they're getting into this altered state of consciousness, right? In this gas and things, and they're having all these ritual things. Okay, uh, but they would also. Uh, it, it was, they said that at the end, the Pythia would be like a runner after a race or a dancer after an ecstatic dance, right? Now, that's another thing that much of the charismatic movement uh, will get into. Uh, but basically, anything that you and I would go, that's kind of strange, okay? The buzzword that I've noticed that they will typically use, well, well, you don't understand because I'm not just dancing. I'm dancing in the spirit. I'm not just singing. I'm singing in the spirit. I'm not just praying. I'm praying in the Spirit. So, so the phrase apparently in the spirit means that. And same thing with dancing. You know, they're dancing. Well, hey, what are those people doing, man? That's kind of freaking me out. Well, they're dancing in the spirit. But did you know that's an old uh, uh, cult? Even back with the, the Romans and the Greeks, they called it a static dance. Because there's different ways that you get yourself into an altered state of consciousness. And one of those is repetitive movement, which includes just dancing. And I'm going to show you one. This, and they still are in the cults, and the occult still uses this technique to have a spiritual experience. Here, here's one right here. Let's just take a look. I'm going to be honest with you. This video puzzles me. I have filmed this footage about a week ago, and since then I've been bashing my head against the wall thinking, how can I make this video tell the truth? I mean, look at this. This looks like a typical hippie party where everyone is on drugs. It looks like those people escaped the mental hospital and this is their celebration or something. What's happening here should be explained. I mean, this is ecstatic dance. No one does any alcohol or drugs here. And it's not like in other parties where drugs are not allowed, but everyone takes them. Here, the drug is something else. Here, people actually connect to the music and actually allow themselves to express in the most raw way. No one judges you, so you are free to move as you want. No one talks to you, so you are able to go deep in the experience. And if someone connects to you, it will be without words. Filming ecstatic dance is a big no-no around the world. But don't worry, if you want to see one, just with all due respect, go to a charismatic church. There's nothing new about this. It's called a static dance. This was done by the cults and the occults, the mystery religions. It was done by Apollo, worship the Pythias, right? Nothing new. Gets you into an altered state of consciousness. It's just being rehashed today. Oh, but, but apparently it's okay because it's in the spirit. And you've heard me say before in other studies, I don't doubt that there's a spiritual experience going on. That doesn't mean that it's the spirit of God. Okay, is the issue, okay? Uh, in fact, apparently one session is recorded that the oracle got so into this Stuff, I quote, the result was a hysterical, uncontrollable reaction from the priestess that resulted in her death a few days later. Apparently got a little too crazy. Now, that was just Apollo. Remember, this is Montanus. Where are we at? Montanus, why is this guy so hung up on, I got a new revelation from God. It's a new movement of the Spirit. You need to listen to me. This is not good anymore. We've got to have something new, right? His background before he supposedly converted to Christianity is that what we just saw and this other one. Sybil, okay, Sybil worship. Now, she was the mother goddess, a Greek goddess, supposedly, uh, adopted by the Greeks. She was also assimilated into what's called Gaia worship or Mother Earth. Mother Earth, that's what this is, 
Okay, trace the truth. This is where it comes from, right? And you hear that big time today in the environmental movement. Okay, uh, but it was celebrated by the Greeks. And she was, when she would get in and part of her worship procession is she would come in on this big old chariot. She had two lions on either side. And in one of her hands, she had a tambourine. It was, it's called tambourist or something like that. It was basically a modern day tambourine because music was big in her worship. Is music big in somebody else's movement? Yeah, but not just music, quote, wild music was a part of hers, and wine, and quote, disorderly ecstatic following. So again, this, all this stuff, right? It was involved in her worship. The Rome, uh, Rome called her uh, Sybil, meaning uh, the great mother, and she also had somebody that was a prophetess as well, that they had the word from God, and, this, uh, and that was the Sybil, and that was the priestess. Now, Sybil, S-I-B-Y-L, Mary, in case you wonder if you have a conversation with your sister later. Okay, Sybil comes from the Latin, which comes from the Greek Sibylla, which means prophetess. So Sybil means prophetess, okay? And there's many different Sibyls or prophetesses in this Sybil worship, okay? And one of the things that she uh, did, the supposedly Sibyls, the prophetesses do, they would sing the fates and they would write it on oak leaves. You know what people are saying? What are you doing? I'm singing in the Spirit, a word for you. Even that's nothing new. They were doing that back in the, the Greeks and the Romans. Uh, and the Sibyl was supposed to be a guide between the two worlds, right? She, she was the, between the living and the dead. And, of course, they would write down all the stuff that's coming out. They're doing all this stuff too, right? And that was what, if you've heard of them, called the Sibylline Oracles, okay? Several different books and things of that nature. Now, again, when they got together, it was quite a cacophony. It was a, quote, joyous abandonment, to loud music, percussive music, casting as clashing cymbals, flutes, and, and it, something called frenzied Phrygian dancing. Now, remember that term Phrygian, spelled P-H-R, okay? Uh, and uh, so that's what they did when they got together. And then they would have these intercessors. Does any of this start, sound familiar? Remember, what's, what's Solomon say? Ain't nothing new, man. <laughs> we just need to learn our history. Okay, but they, they, these intercessors, with, they're into this loud music and wine, and they're going, they're doing crazy, ecstatic dancing, woo, and supposedly prophesying. And then, then, then they would interrupt, they would, they would also connect through, what, dreams, trances, ecstatic dances, and songs. Is that big in the movement you've heard of lately, too? Same thing going on. Now, so that was just a quick background of this Montanus guy. Before he supposedly converted to Christianity... We already know what the Bible is in the church. Direct hand-to-hand passing the torch from the last apostle. This guy rises on the scene. Nope, nope. I got a new prophecy. I am the voice that you need to listen to. Why do you think he would say that? What was his background? And why did he was so hung up on all this behavior, this, dare I say, charismatic behavior? Because that's what Apollo Worship did. That's what civil worship did. That's where he got it from. He just tried to Christianize it. Do you see? Nothing new under the sun. But anyway, that's what he did. Now, before his conversion, that's what he was involved in. He also set up his headquarters in a town, an area called Phrygia. Remember I said Phrygia dancing? Right? Now, Phrygia is what he labeled as the New Jerusalem. This was this guy's headquarters of this new prophecy movement. Are there... Headquarters for these charismatic movements today? Yeah, one's in Reading, 
Another one, IHOP. You got Kansas City, different places around the world. So they, they have their headquarters. So he had his headquarters that he called the New Jerusalem. And it was in this area of Phrygia, okay? And uh, that's the area. Now, the Phrygians, okay, again, I already said they were involved in the Phrygian dancing. And, but the Phrygians, why did he set it up there, of all places, for his so-called new Christian movement? That he's now supposedly a Christian? Because guess where the center of worship was for Sybil? Phrygia. Right? So he sets it up in the same area that these guys, and he basically tried to Christianize that practice. Is, is really what was going on there, okay? And, uh, and so, uh, now, also, for those of you wondering, remember, music is really huge, right? This movement, music, all that's a way to get into an altered state of consciousness, right? And, of course, the, the Greeks and the Romans, their belief was that when you get into an altered state of consciousness, what are you doing? You're connecting, you're communing, you're communicating with the gods, which would be demons, Right? You look at many again today that through many repetitious movements and, and movements, and this, there's no preaching of the Word of God, there's no Bible study, there's no discipleship, you just got this thing going on. And what do they say? I felt the spirit. I'm not doubting you have a spiritual uh, experience. Doesn't mean it's the spirit of God. But back to the music thing, that's actually where we get the term, for those of you hooked on music theory, the Phrygian mode, if you're familiar with that, it came from this. And apparently, it was given that name. Phrygian, after the, quote, unbounded ecstatic peoples of the wild mountainous regions that were doing this kind of stuff. So I don't know what that mode is. Robert, you had to play it for some time, but I'm guessing it's pretty ecstatic, right? But that's where that term came from, the Phrygian mode the music. All right, so let's just go back there. So here's this guy. He claims to be a Christian. He's got this background and all this, frankly, pre-charismatic behavior that's nothing new that was involved with the Romans and the Greeks. Uh, he's got a new movement. He sets up his headquarters there and encouraged, listen, it's just one thing if he wanted to do his own island thing, but he encouraged, quote, the foundation of a separate sect of Christianity. Does that sound familiar? Right? That we need a new Christianity. This is a new movement of the Spirit, things of that nature, right? Also, now, again, we're going to get into some more parallels. Montanus, on top of all what we just said, he traveled with two female colleagues, right? One was Prissa, uh, sometimes called Priscilla. Another one was Maxmilla, Priscilla Maxmilla, who also claimed to have the inspiration of the supposedly Holy Spirit, as we know in the scripture. Uh, they felt they too, were, he was a prophet, they were prophetesses, right? Uh, they actually were even more popular than Montanus because apparently they could really get into it. Right? But the three of them together, quote, spoke in ecstatic visions and urged their followers to fast and pray so that they could have the same revelations as well. Uh, their followers claimed to, again, have these prophetic gifts. Uh, and, and, and again, uh, it didn't spread just there in Phrygia. It began to spread out uh, into uh, Africa and Gaul, the, the Christian world around that area. So again, what was the response? Again, you got to understand the timing. you got to understand this guy's background. We already know the church knew what was the Word of God. We have direct hand accounts from the last apostle living, right? And all of a sudden, here comes this guy on the scene. Nope, we need to get away from that. Here's a new movement of Christianity involved in all this kind of behavior to get you away from the Word of God. Now, what did it do to the early church before they basically were able to put a stop to it for at least a while? Sound familiar? Watch this. The response to the new prophecy movement, quote, split 
Christian communities. Does that happen today? When sometimes that takes a foothold in the church and there's no balance? Yeah, same thing that they had to deal with. Nothing new under the sun. Orthodox clergy fought to suppress it. Well, those people were just religious. And they needed to have their spiritual stronghold broken. And me- No, they could see for what it is. They were leading people away from God. Opponents believed also that evil spirits, demons, possess the Phrygian prophets, Maximilla and Priscilla, and they believed that they were the targets of failed exorcism. So these people at that time in recorded history say they don't even believe these people are saved, basically, and that these girls are still demon-possessed. They tried to get them out, but it didn't get out, and that's why you're seeing this behavior. Now, don't you think that the people who were right there, right then, probably has a better understanding than even you and I looking back? So I think their accounts should weigh pretty heavily. So that's what they believe. Also, the churches of Asia Minor pronounced the prophecies, listen, profane. They excommunicated new prophecy adherents. Well, they're just causing division. We all need to get to, not this. Not when somebody said you need a new word from God and get away from this word of God, leading people astray, right? Same thing. Now, around 177, uh, Apollinarius, bishop of Heriopolis, he presided over a synod which condemned the new prophecy. So back, I think much of us were afraid to talk about this topic, okay? But these guys said, uh-uh, you better put it down. You better put it down fast because we can see where this is headed. It's going to lead people outside the Bible, and they're going to get duped and be in trouble. In 193, an anonymous writer wrote that the church in Ancra in Galatia was, quote, torn in two because they were opposing this movement. It had made its way there. You guys, real quick, I've shared the testimony with you guys before uh, when I was pastoring in Northern California. Uh, a pastor uh, acquaintance up there, he told me I couldn't, I'm like, are you serious? He said, yeah, and it really happened to him. He said there were some folks, with all due respect, that kind of had the charismatic flavor, and they started coming to uh, the church he pastored, and, and while he was there, they, they kind of kept it kind of cool, whatever, whatever, and they knew that where he stood and whatever, but they, they seemed to be respectful at that point. I kid you not, he said, I went away for vacation. They'd been coming for about six months regularly, right, and there's a group of them, he said, I went away for a two weeks vacation. I came back and there was a notice on my door that uh, I was no longer the pastor. They worked their way into that church, took over the church in two weeks, convinced the church that this is what they need to do. The pastor's a fuddy-duddy, get rid of them. Took the church over. This is the same thing when this so-called new movement, which is nothing new at all, happened to the early church. Exact same parallels. Right? Now, they also, Monta's teaching became regarded as heresy. They flat out called it heretical at that time because, again, uh, of his beliefs that you're going outside the Scripture. Also, listen to this. This one I didn't know. They also, the early church, the apostolic fathers, 100 to 200, right there, right after the last apostle, right? they were upset about this guy and their, quote, dramatic public display because their behavior is like, oh, you're doing this, whatever. And they were concerned Okay, that it was going to give, quote, unwarranted attention to Christianity that was just getting off. In other words, they're going to like, hey, dudes, that's not a good advertisement. The world's going to think we're freaky. Sound familiar? Now, listen, this is the part I didn't know, right? The imperial government carried out sporadic execution of Christians under the reign of Marcus Aurelius, from 161 to 100 AD, during this time when Montanus is doing his thing, quote, which coincides with the spread of Montanism. 
So the early church was saying, knock it off. What are you guys doing? You're giving us a bad... The seculars are looking at us. And many people believed it was because of this new prophecy movement, which is basically what we're seeing today, charismatic, nothing new, is what stirred up the persecution, amongst other things, with Christians, and they begin to be executed. Because look at those people. They're freaky. Isn't that wild? Interesting, right? Now, uh, uh, much of it got put down, and uh, it stayed down for a little bit, but then it began to get back out going about 100 years later, 249 or so, it started to come out. And Lord willing, we're going to start tracing the trail throughout history and stuff, but that's basically Montanism. Now, a couple of things that Montanists believe, tell me this doesn't sound familiar. Remember what the premise is? It's a new movement from God. That we just it's, Yes, it's different. Yes, it's strange. But hey, that's what you can expect with this new, nothing new under the sun. Here's some more things that Montanists believe. Tell me that's not what's being done today. Now, the followers of the new prophecy movement, Montanism, called themselves spirituales, which means spiritual people. In contrast, you know what they called their opponents, the people who didn't believe them and go along with that? They called them the psychikai, the carnal or natural people. Is that being done today? Well, see, you don't understand. You don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit like I do. You can't speak in this, with all due respect, gibberish like I can. Right? You don't get visions from God like I do. I'm a spiritualist. You're carnal. Poor guy. Same thing they did back then. Nothing new under the sun. Not even with that. Let me give you another one. Okay? Uh, Eusebius. This is some of the behavior that Montanus would do when he got his so-called new prophecies. Uh, he writes down, Eusebius, he's considered the, the father of church history, by the way. He said, and he, Montanus, became beside himself, and being suddenly in a sort of frenzy and ecstasy, he raved and began to babble and utter strange things, prophesying in a manner to the constant custom of the church handed down, uh, uh, contrary to the custom that was handed down of the church from the beginning. So he said, this guy would just get whooped up and start doing this and babbling and moving and shaking. And he, he clearly said, that's never been that way. Uh, from the church from the beginning, right? Uh, they also believe that they're this new prophecy movement. You know, Montan, they believe that they were receiving direct authority uh, from God. In fact, that their authority, listen, superseded the authority of Jesus or Paul, the apostle, or anybody else. Sound familiar? That's what some of the movement believes today, that they're on that level. Nothing new under the sun. It's all being rehashed today, folks. Oh, and in fact, one of the other big things that uh, Montanist people said, you've, okay, dude, you've really drawn the line now. This is the, you're going over the line. Is that he believed that he was just like the oracles, you know, Apollo, Sybil, of the Greco-Roman world, and he spoke in the first person as God. They believed that he was actually claiming himself to be God. Wait a second. Does the charismatic movement today, that's supposed to be a new movement, do they claim to be God? Oh, yeah. All over the place. Watch this. Nothing new under the sun. Take a look. Do you know what else that has settled then tonight? This hue and cry and controversy that has been spawned by the devil to try and bring dissension within the body of Christ that we're gods. I am a little God. Yes. Yes. I have his name. I'm one with him. I'm in covenant relation. Yes. I and a little God. Critics, you are anything that he is. Yes. If horses get together, they produce what? 
And if dogs get together, they produce what? If cats get together, they produce what? But if the Godhead gets together and say, let us make man, then what are they producing? They're producing gods. Now, I got to hit this thing real hard in the very beginning because I ain't got time to go through all this. But I'm going to say to you right now, you are gods. You know, why do people have such a fit about God calling his creation, his creation, his man, not his whole creation, but his man, little gods? If he's God, what's he going to call them but the God kind? I mean, if you as a human being have a baby, you call it a human kind. If, if cattle has another cattle, they call it cattle kind. So, I mean, what's God supposed to call us? Doesn't the Bible say we're created in his image? You know who you are? Turn to Psalm 82. This is going to blow your mind real good. Psalm 82, 1. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. That's you. He judgeth among the what? Now, would you please listen to me? This is talking about you. He's telling the gods. Who are the gods? You are. See, I never heard that. Let me ask you this. Hello, you. Are you God's offspring? Then you're not human. So this God-like person inside of Benny Hinn right here has nothing to do with flesh and blood. He's a part of God. He's a little God walking in a, in a little body saying in Jesus' name. God came from heaven, became a man, made man into little gods, went back to heaven as man, he faces the Father as a man. I face devils as the Son of God. Jesus said, go in my name, go in my stead. Don't say I have, say I am, I am, I am, I am, I am. Say after me, within me is a God-man. Say it again. Within me is a God-man. Now let's say it even better than that. Let's say I am a God-man. When you say I'm a Christian, you're saying I am Mashiach in the Hebrew. I'm a little Messiah walking on earth, in other words. When I read in the Bible where he says, I am, I just smile and say, yes, I am too. Here's where it's going to get big for some people. Get ready. Go, go ahead. Email me now in that place. <laughs> go ahead. You tap into who you really are. You know what the Bible calls you? It says you are a little Elohim. You are a little God. No, that's not what the Bible says at all. But again, what's the premise with this? It's supposed to be a new movement of God in these last days. It's a new revelation. That's why it's different. That's why uh, Montanus in the first century. And, oh, and he got it from the Greeks and the Romans many centuries even prior. But that's what he believed he was. Little God. Nothing new under the sun. It's just been repackaged because we don't know in history. A couple more here. Uh, they also believe the new prophecy movement. Tell me this isn't similar. They believe that they had the power as supposedly apostles. That's a whole other thing. They think that they're also apostles. Apostles and prophets to forgive sins. They also recognize, you think, well, this is a new movement of God. This is why it's different and strange. It's because it's the last days. And they recognize, this is Montanus back then, first century. They recognize women as bishops and presbyters. So who's one of the, are, are women called to be pastors? No. But is this because it's, yeah, it's different, but it's a new movement. No, it's not a new movement of God. They were doing the same thing back then. Oh, and who were the big leaders with the oracles of Apollo and Sabel? Was it men? 
Typically, no, it was women. So it's the same thing. They're just repackaged it. Now, they also got into legalism. You'll find this in a lot of, uh, unfortunately, charismatic churches as well. Uh, women and girls were forbidden. This is Montanus. Women and girls were forbidden to wear ornaments. And at some point, some ladies had to require to wear veils. Do some of these people say, well, you know, in charismatic places, you can't wear pants, ladies. It's got to be dresses. It's got to be all the way down. And hey, I'm all about, what's the scripture say? Modesty and decency. Don't go the other end of the spectrum, even in a Baptist church, whatever. Okay, you, this is not a meat market. Hello, I've preached on that I don't know how many times. But at the same time, you know, the world's not going to blow up, right? You don't have to have to wear a dress all the way down there and, and then, oh, coin for all the way over here. And with a hat and ladies, you got to wear it in a bun. They were doing the same thing back then, right? I've said it before, I'll say it again. And I quote, I didn't make this up, J. Vern McGee. You know, because the big thing, well, you can't wear makeup, you can't do all this. That's legalism. You know, his rule was basically this. If a barn needs painting, paint it. <laughs> That's why I said he said that, not me. Right? But this is nothing new. So even that legalistic aspect, right, uh, was nothing new. What, what's the frame? Why, why do you think I opened up with Ecclesiastes? Nothing new under the sun. What has been, it's already happened we just forget the past. Man, is that so true today? Uh, in fact, let me we'll close with this. Put all this together, the Apollo, a lot of this behavior, supposed new charismatic, nothing new. Even goes back to the Greco-Roman world, Apollo worship, the Phrygian dancing, the static dancing, the wine. The, you know, so so, so what, would, what would a, uh, a Pythia, a priestess of Apollo look like after a bunch of music going on for an extended period of time, if you get into an altered state of consciousness and she starts getting into this ecstatic frenzy, what would a Pythia look like today? I think it's going to look something like this. This is to me the exact same thing, except it's supposed to be a new movement of God. This is a charismatic lady, a false teacher, a heretic, I'll say that, Stacy Campbell. And she's been worked up into a frenzy. And this is now how we're supposed to get a word from God. Watch this. Um. I was in the room. When the Holy Spirit first fell on David Roost like that. God began to talk to us about a move of the Spirit that would come. But when we were in our 20s, He said that the greatest move that we would ever see would come upon the children behind us. The generation behind us. I had another sign. My son broke his neck. The doctor said 95% chance he would never walk again. But 
But suddenly, the toes on his left foot began to wiggle. Then the whole foot began to move. Then the other one. Yep. We don't need another boring sermon. You don't need to get overly focused on doctrine. That's another way it's phrased. Doctrine. I don't need doctrine. I need the Spirit of God. Now, I know what you guys are asking. You guys are not prophets, nor the son thereof. But you're probably saying, I bet you I know why her son broke his neck. <laughs> I only say that because I could hear you guys out there. <laughs> I bet you'd broke it that way. <laughs> With all due respect. Oh, just kidding. Right? I'm not saying I rejoice over him breaking his neck. I don't want to get the emails. Right? But that's supposed to be a new movement of God. Based on what we saw tonight, is it anything new? No. My guess? I think that's what the Phrygia people were doing. The civil worship. I think that's what the Pythia, the priestess, was doing when those vapors got a hold of her. But somehow, we're the fuddy-duddies. But with all due respect, anybody who's being led away from the Word of God, we need to love them enough to say, hey, get back to the book. You're being led astray. Amen? Let's pray. Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get a Life Ministries, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. Are you sure that if you were to die today that you go to heaven and not hell? Now, before you answer that, let me uh, share with you a couple things that the Bible says. The Bible says that God is holy and that we are not. And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death. We don't deserve to go to heaven when we die. We deserve to go down. We deserve to go to hell. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this problem that we have, that we're separated from God not only now, but we're going to be separated from Him for all eternity in a place called hell. We, we, we don't even want to admit that. So once again, out of love, God gives us what's called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were God's x-ray, if you will, divine x-ray to, to get us to admit the problem that we have inside that's separating us from Him. Let, let, let's take a look at a few of those of God's divine x-ray. For instance, if you think that you're worthy on your own, you don't need a Savior, uh, you're going to get to heaven all by yourself, then let's take a look at God's test there. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments. The ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. Uh, how many of you have ever told a lie before? Raise your hand. Okay. Uh, if you didn't raise your hand, you just told one. But folks, we've all done that. That makes us a liar. The Ten Commandments, God's x-ray, showing us that we have sin that's separating us from Him. We're not holy and perfect like Him. The Fifth Commandment says this, you shall not steal. Don't ever once take anything without permission. How many of you have ever done that? Well, if we're not going to tell another lie, we, we should all admit that as well. Well, that makes us a thief now. The Bible says that God is so holy, uh, even His name is holy. And that's why the Ten Commandments says, You shall not use the Lord's name in vain. And if we're honest again, folks, hey, a lot of us, how many of us have used the blessed name of Jesus Christ? The only name, the Bible says, under heaven, that men might be saved. We've now turned it into a common cuss word, if you can believe that. The Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy. The Bible also says, hey, show, you want to show God you're so perfect, you have no sin? Then don't ever once commit adultery. And you might say, well, I, I've never done that. Really? Jesus lays the standard before us. God looks at the heart. Man looks on the outside. Jesus said, if you ever looked with lust in your eye, 
at another person. You've committed adultery in your heart. That's his holy standard. One more. The Bible says, okay, you think you're so good? Uh, then don't ever once commit murder. You shall not murder. And you might say, well, hey, I, at least I haven't done that one. Really? The Bible again says that the sin of hatred, wishing someone was uh, dead, is akin to the sin of murder. It's just, if you will, you pull the trigger in your heart. So, so, so how are you doing? That's just 5 out of 10 of God's divine x-ray, by the way, uh, showing us the problem. How are you doing? Not if, but when your time comes, we're all going to stand before God. You will be forced to admit what He already knows. Hey, God, let me in. Let me in. I'm a, I'm a liar. I'm a, I'm a thief. I'm a, a blasphemer, an adulterer, and a murderer. And the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You're not headed to heaven in that state. You're headed to hell. But here's the good news. God said if we would just admit this, number one, then he could fix it. And it gets fixed only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. Jesus said in the book of John, chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the life, and the truth, and nobody comes to the Father but by me. Why? Because only Jesus lived the perfect life in our place. And Jesus died on the cross. He took the death penalty in our place so that we could be set free. And since we weren't there, and since it's a gift and we can't earn it, we have to receive that wonderful gift by faith. And the Bible says God will pardon us for our crimes, our sins, against Him. And you could actually see this analogy working uh, in the natural, in the normal world. Uh, we see this actually uh, in the courtroom. For instance, if a person is guilty and, and everybody knows they're guilty, they've committed a horrible crime and, and, and the, the sentence has passed, the judge has knocked down the gavel and says, hey, uh, you are going to jail, you are going to the death penalty for that crime. And, and we know that people, that happens all the time and they go to jail, but believe it or not, did you know there's a way for that person, even though they're guilty, to actually be set free from that crime? It's called a pardon. And the one in authority, the governor, has the part out of mercy, out of goodness, certainly nothing that that person did in jail. They can't undo the crime. It's too late. But out of mercy, the governor could go down there and grant that person in jail a full pardon for their crimes. And by receiving that pardon, the doors come open and they are set free and they're rescued from the death penalty. Folks, that's what God is doing every single day with us spiritually. He has allowed His Son, Jesus Christ, to take the death penalty in our place. He's pardoned us, but a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it. And it's actually been on historical record that there have been people on death row who a governor has gone down out of mercy and extended to them a full pardon, but they've rejected it. And by their own doing, they went to the death penalty. Folks, don't make that same mistake for all eternity. God loves you. He's willing to forgive you of anything and everything you've ever done. All of it. Even the sins we don't even know about. He wants to pardon you and forgive you, but you must receive that by faith today. The Bible says if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you call upon His name, ask Him to forgive you of all your sins, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the grave, you will be saved. Please do that now. Please do that today because tomorrow may be too late. Well, this has been Billy Crone of Get a Life Ministries. Again, thank you for joining us. If there's anything that you need, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to contact us. Our information and number and uh, things will uh, pop up here on the screen here shortly. And remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.